Awesome. Thank you so much, Gray. And uh, New Valley, it's so good to be with you. It was good to worship and fellowship with you during this last service. Uh, but it's really a tremendous honor to be able to uh, present the word to you this morning. Um, as, as Grace said, I've, I've known Scott for, um, for a little while now, and that connection is through something called the Surge Network. And I'll just, I'll just tell you this, you guys are a part of a really neat thing that's happening in Phoenix right now. Um, God is doing a work in a really interesting way among pastors and church leaders and churches like yourselves that have chosen to kind of come together and uh, utilize and uh, do whatever we can to come around one another resource-wise in prayer and fellowship for the sake of God's kingdom being more firmly established here in Phoenix and in Arizona. And so you are all, uh, by extension, are kind of a part of that. Scott and I know each other as leaders in the Surge Network and as people involved in that network, um, but you are all a part of that, and it's really amazing to see what God is doing as we have, I think, about 39 churches now that have kind of come uh, together to partner for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of uh, Christ's name being known and uh, going forth in the Phoenix area and beyond here in Arizona. So it's a privilege to be with you today. Uh, as, as Grace said, my name is Josh Harp. I'm a pastor on staff at a church called Via Church in Mesa. Via just means the way. We stem our name out of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, we just live to make his name known, as you guys do as well. I can tell that we're going to get along because you guys love Jesus and you love coffee. And so this is going to be a good day. And I'm, I'm hoping that many of you had your coffee already, that you're ready to get into the word and go after it today. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter. You guys are going through 1 Peter right now. And when I spoke with Scott, uh, he said, hey, what would, what would you like to preach on? And I just said, well, where are you guys at right now? I'd love to just kind of continue on in the process of where you guys are at. You guys go through books of the Bible in a similar way uh, to our style, which is this expository is kind of the word uh, that we use for it, where we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, topic by topic through the word of God to pull out, to cull out the richness that's there and to really sink our teeth into it. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, the very end of chapter 3 today. So if you want, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 18 here in a moment. I'll read it for us. But before we do that, I, I uh, want to do something that I, I often like to do whenever diving into a text of Scripture, and that is just to give a little bit of context. As we look at 1 Peter, many of you know this if you've been going to New Valley for some time and you've been a part of this series. 1 Peter was a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus and was one of the early church apostles. And Peter pens this letter and he sends it not to just one particular church. We know the Apostle Paul would send letters to particular churches in like a city. Peter sends this letter to a region, and he has a guy that delivers this letter to these various churches in this region, which if you think about in modern day terms, this would be like uh, kind of northern, western Turkey, this general region that Peter was sending his letters to. Many scholars believe that Peter was writing from Rome, and he's writing to these churches and in this letter, as you've seen, I mean, we're in end of chapter three. You guys have been well immersed in this. You see that Peter is writing to encourage these churches that are facing tremendous pressure, that are facing tremendous suffering and opposition from the outside, from the Roman world that is kind of pressing in around them. And Peter knows even more of how much this 
persecution is going to intensify in the years to come because the emperor Nero is just starting and, and his reign is, is really kind of uh, uh, beginning and going forth in that particular area. And so Peter's writing to them to encourage these churches and to infuse courage within them to face this suffering uh, and to consider Christ and what he's done for them. But the section that we're in today is an interesting section because it's the end of chapter 3 and about in the middle of chapter 2, you guys started this section where Peter is going, okay, church, you've been transformed by the good news of Jesus. You've been called by him to be a light and a witness to the good news. This is how you're to conduct yourselves. You are to be good citizens in this world. When people look at you, they should look at you and go, man, I don't know what it is about those people, but they, they care about the city they live in. They care about the state that they find themselves in. They, they involve themselves in works that help our city to flourish and grow. Uh, you should be good workers, like your employees. If you're a boss, your employees should look at you and go, there's something weird about that guy. Like, he's honest. He is on top of his game. Like He cares about me. If you're an employee, you should conduct yourself this way as well. You should be known as the people who work hard, who work diligently. Um, Peter's encouraging this in them. He also speaks to the family dynamic. He says, husbands, you should love your wives and care for your families. Wives, you should lovingly submit to your husbands. And this is what this looks like in the context of marriage. And then the section that just immediately precedes where we're going to go today is the section where he goes, okay, community of faith. So he's, he's looking at a congregation, maybe like this at New Valley, and he's going, okay, congregation, community of faith, this is what your interactions with each other ought to look like. And this is how you can embody this good news message. And this is how you can show the outside world what it is to be reconciled with God. And the joy and the unity that you experience here should be visible out there. But then the section for today that we're going to read is kind of where he is rooting all of these encouragements and all of this instruction about their conduct. And so we're going to read this uh, together and then we're going to talk about uh, three things that I think we need to see here. Those three things, just so you can put them in your mind. Sometimes I like it when people just tell me, just tell me where we're going, right? And let me know where we're, where we're going. The first thing is that Jesus' death brings sinners back to God. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing is that Jesus speaks through the persecuted minority, and particularly this persecuted minority, and then we'll see he's going to call our attention back to Noah uh, in the text. And then thirdly is that Jesus rules over all. That Jesus rules over all. So Jesus, his death brings uh, sinners back to God. He speaks through the persecuted minority and he rules over all. So let's look at our text. I'm going to read, you can follow along, and then we'll dig into it together. So 1 Peter chapter 3 starting in verse 18, going through verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, God, you are perfect in all of your ways. God, we sit before your word now and we ask, we pray that you would open our ears this morning so that we can hear what you would want to tell us through your word. God, we pray in these moments that you would open our eyes so that we would see what you would want to show us as we wrestle with this text together over these next few moments. God, I pray for our hearts in this place, that you would tenderize our hearts and that your Holy Spirit, the comforter and the convictor, would do his work in us. That as our hearts are tender, that that your Holy Spirit would shine his light into our hearts so that we won't walk out of here the same, but God, by your grace, we will be continually changed, continually transformed, and continually conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Well, um, yeah, my family was here for the first service, uh, and we as a family have lived in Arizona for about eight years now. How many of you would say that that makes me somewhat like an Arizonan? Anybody in the room? I'm not an Arizonan? Okay. I feel like one. I've been through eight summers. Okay, we moved in May from Minnesota. Can I just paint this picture for you real quick? Minnesota winter is just unbelievably horrendous, like sub-zero temperatures. And some of you that have lived in Arizona your whole life, you think about Minnesota and you have these like grandiose ideas about beautiful snow-capped hills and all this stuff. And it's not like that for like four months of winter. It's, it's all the snow is melted, it's sludge on the road, and there's salt all on the road, and it's gray, and it's overcast all the time. And it's, just, it's just ridiculous, and it's freezing cold. Like when you go outside and breathe in, all the moisture in your nose freezes like that. It's just, that was a little too graphic for some of you, but it's the reality of it. So we move in May, so we endured a Minnesota winter, and then moved down and got introduced to an Arizona summer, which was awesome. And, uh, and we've been down here ever since. But we, we love Arizona, my, my wife and I and our kids. And we moved down here with a two-year-old. She's now 10. Uh, and we have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. And we've got a, a four-year-old a f- a friend who's staying with us for a while as well, who's four. Um, and our family grew here. This is a special place to us. Uh, for three of those years, we lived in a house in, in Power Ranch. I don't know if any of you guys know where Power Ranch, the communities are. It's a kind of a larger community down in Southern Gilbert. And I have a lot of fond memories of this house because this is where my kids kind of grew up and, and we had a pool in the backyard and we'd go out there, you know, almost every night in the summer and just cool down. And when I think about this house, I have a lot of good memories, but I have a couple bad memories. Um, and those bad memories pretty much surround my time of doing yard work. (laughs) In the backyard of this house, I'm just painting the picture for you, in the backyard of this house, um, we had these plants that I will argue are a a direct result of the fall. In Genesis 3, thorns and thistles, remember that piece? Bougainvilleas. (laughs) How many of you hate bougainvilleas? 
All right, I can get some testifying in here. Bougainvilleas are terrible, right? We had like six of those in the backyard. And in the front of our house, we had a mesquite tree, which is just about as bad. Like it's thorny and, and these, these trees and these bougainvilleas, I would trim them up and these pieces would be laying all over the place. And uh, every time it seemed, every time I was out doing yard work, I would step on one of these branches with the thorns sticking up, and those thorns are resilient, and they'd go all the way through my shoe and come all the way up into my foot, and I probably have scars on the bottom of my foot to, to prove this, but it was horrible, right? And especially in the summer, doing yard work in the summer was just especially grueling, as many of you men know. Uh, some of you enjoy it, which I don't, I don't get that, but um, I'd be doing this yard work, and we're talking about suffering, and so I thought this would be a good illustration to share with you guys, suffering. And I'd be doing this yard work, and I, I just remember there were thoughts that I would think in my head to get myself through these times of doing yard work, almost like me going, like, find a happy place, find a happy place. And these were the thoughts. I would think, okay, a good father <laughs> does yard work, right? A good father cares for his kids by taking up all the bougainvillea branches off of the ground. That's what a good father does. A good husband cares and tends for the yard so that when my wife looks out the window, she sees a beautiful yard and she's not worried about her kids, you know, stepping on these thorny things. You know, I would think thoughts like that, but here's a confession moment. The thought that went through my mind the most often, that got me through those horribly sweaty, grueling hours outside was me working alongside this pool and going, when it's all said and done, I'm just going to jump in that pool. <laughs> and that was the thought that would get me through many of those hours outside. And I would. You'd get through and you just jump in the pool and cool off like that. And it was amazing. This is obviously an example of suffering that's a pretty uh, benign pathetic example when we think about real suffering. But many of you, I, I think as we go through our lives, we experience suffering at all various levels. And if we were to survey and, and go through and inventory this room, I think we would discover uh, some situations of suffering that would be compelling, that would be difficult, that would maybe for you sitting here today, there's something that you're facing or a pressure that's coming at you from the side that you're going, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. This it seems like it's beyond me. And when we see suffering of this magnitude, sometimes there can be these questions that linger in our minds, questions like this, what hope do I have to look forward to as I, as I see this suffering around me? Or questions like, what encouragement do I have that this suffering that I'm experiencing is worth anything? Is it just, is it just a waste? Is it just happenstance? Or is it worth something? Some of you might go through difficult seasons and you might experience this darkness that you just, you look at it and you go, my goodness, it feels like this darkness is just going to consume me. I don't, I don't know. It just feels like all of this brokenness is so great around me that it's just going to overtake me. What hope do I have through this? And then if you're honest with yourself, you experience this brokenness, but then you look inside and you go, you know what, if I'm real, I look in my own heart and I see brokenness there too. I see, I see a darkness there too. And so what hope do we have? What hope do we look towards when we experience suffering, when we experience difficulty? Peter has some very vital things for us to consider this morning as we dig into this text. The first thing I want to bring to our attention is that Jesus' death brings sinners 
back to God. This is uh, one thing that Peter is, is bringing out here. You see this in verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Everybody say once. Once. Once is not twice. Once is not three times. It's not multiple. Once is once. One time Christ suffered for sins. And this is significant because in the, in the Old Testament, you read about the Israelites who sacrificed continually. And we learn in the New Testament that those, the blood of the animals in the Old Testament, as these Israelites would come and lay these animals before the altar and sacrifice them to God, we learn that the blood of those animals didn't actually atone for anybody's sins. But what the blood did and what the sacrifices did was it showed, it showed the obedience and the faithful posture of the Israelites' heart towards God, and it showed their faith in God to provide. It showed their faith in God's promise. And it ultimately, we learn, points to Jesus. And so Peter says, Christ suffered. He died once for sins. Hebrews 10, 14 says this, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus died, it's just interesting to think about, when he died, his death actually accomplished something. It didn't just make salvation possible. It wasn't like it just opened up this invitation. But what it did is it actually saved. He actually paid for his bride. He actually paid for the elect, the church. He purchased them for himself. And he did this once. And so Peter explains this and he goes into this. He says all of these things and then he centers it and he says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is, and this is a packed statement, let me just tell you. The righteous for the unrighteous. What this says to us is that we required a substitute. That you could not pay for your sins. You could not atone for your fallenness, your brokenness. You needed help from the outside. Now this is, I'll just tell you, this is the opposite narrative. This narrative that I just told you, that you need help from the outside, this is the opposite narrative than we, that we see in the majority of our Western world, especially right now. We're living in a time where the narrative that we experience through movies, through culture, through art, is very much this narrative that help comes from within. Like you need to discover who you are the hope that you have is deep on the inside and you need to dig into the depths of who you are, discover who you are, and let that come out. And that's how you're going to experience freedom. That's how you're going to experience liberation. We were, my family and I, we do movie nights every Friday night. And this last Friday, we watched the movie Zootopia. Anybody see Zootopia? A few of you? Okay. Um, some of you may want to see this afterwards. Some of you may not. Who knows? If you have kids, you're probably feeling more pressure to see it. It's a kid's movie. And in this movie, Zootopia, there is this bunny who is the central character of this movie. And this bunny grew up on a, <coughs> on a carrot farm. <laughs> right, yeah, it's, it's good. And uh, her parents were carrot farmers, and this bunny aspires to be a cop in the big city, police officer in the big city. So you can see two different worlds, two very different roles, right? This is, this is within her. And this bunny decides, this is kind of the central point, the, the um, message and kind of the subplot of the movie is that this bunny defies all conventional wisdom around her 
She's discovered who she is, and she's going to pursue that despite what her parents say, despite what her friends say, despite what the people from her town say, despite what all of her peers say. She's going to pursue that, and in that, she's going to find liberation, which in the movie, she, she does ultimately find that. But everything else is against her. Conversely, there's this fox in the movie. So this is like the opposite side of the equation, but showing the same narrative. There's a fox in the movie that at a young age... <coughs> He wants to be different than a normal fox. Fox is the predator, and he wants to, he wants to do things that the, uh, those animals that aren't predators, bunnies, things like that, that they do. And so he joins this club, but he's quickly ostracized. And he discovers that the whole culture around him, his society around him, just wants him to be a fox, which means that he's not trustworthy, means that he's a thief. And so he decides to operate within conventional wisdom, so to speak, and just be that role, and he becomes a criminal, right? So you see these two paths laid out before you, but ultimately there's this message, even at the surface of this, this kid's movie that I, I think is a great movie. It's a, there's so many great themes that can be extracted from it, but yet there is this kind of sub-narrative with it that says, you got to find yourself. Hope comes from the inside. The answers you need are deep inside here, and you need to follow your heart. How do, you har- how do you argue with somebody that says, I was just following my heart in our culture? It's hard to. But the gospel narrative, the narrative that Peter is laying out here for us, is so opposite that. It's not that help has to come from the inside, but rather that help has to come from the outside. That we need a rescuer. That our hearts are not to be trusted, but they're to be guarded. Our hearts are to be guided through this life. We aren't just to say, whatever my heart wants, my heart gets. Our hearts are actually to be guarded. And so what we learn through the gospel narrative, what we learn about us as fallen creatures is that we are created to worship this God, but our desires have been bent, our desires have been corrupted, and we desperately, desperately need help from the outside. And so the message of the gospel is that the help comes from the outside that the righteous one had to come for us, the unrighteous, which is exactly what Christ did, that he might bring us to God, Peter says. That he might reconcile you and I, whose faith and trust is in Jesus, that he might bring us to God. This is the glorious reality of the gospel, that we've come to know and love. This is what he did for us. So when you think about this in your life, One of the things that I think Peter wants to do for these churches is he's going, you need to marvel at your salvation a little bit. And you, New Valley Church, you need to think about and marvel at your salvation, even now, even in this moment. Think about the way that God has saved you and called you for himself. Think about the people that he has used. Think about the influences within your life. Think about your story. This might have a great deal to do with your family that you grew up in. This might have a great deal to do with friends that were around you at a young age. This might have a great deal to do with just this last year. Some of you may be very new to the faith, and this is a fresh experience for you. And even now, I think Peter, the Holy Spirit that inspired this text to be written, would say you need to marvel at your salvation. When you, when you look at yourself, do you look at yourself and go, man, God's lucky to have me, right? <laughs> I don't think any of you do that. But you all go, man, I am so fortunate. 
I am so blessed to be able to be called a son or a daughter of God through Christ. And I marvel at that, that he would do that for me, an unrighteous sinner. So Peter brings this to their attention. So Jesus' death brings sinners back to God. Uh, The second piece that I think we need to bring out here is that Jesus speaks through the persecuted minority. Now this next section, I'll I'll just tell you, this next section, you may have read this before and you're just scratching your heads going, what in the world does Peter mean when he writes this? Because it just sounds confusing. You're in good company. Let me read you something that Martin Luther wrote. Martin Luther is a hero of our faith. He was a, one of the great reformers in the Protestant Reformation uh, in the 16th century. And Martin Luther said this about this particular text. He says this. So this, I hope this is encouraging to you. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So some of you can breathe a sigh of relief. Like Martin Luther is there with us. He understands that there's, there's difficulty in wrestling through this. But uh, without going into all the specifics about, you know, all the various levels of interpretation with this, I want to share with you my conviction about this text. And I think we can look at the context around here and discern some things that are uh, formative and important for us. You realize that, that Peter is speaking to a persecuted church. He's speaking to a church that is wondering, what is all the brokenness of this world going to ultimately lead to? How are we to bear ourselves up under it? For how long will this occur? Is this part of God's plan? Is this what he is doing? This, this um, uh, oppressive feeling, this Roman Empire, these things that are coming at us, this persecution that is weighing down on us. He's speaking to a church that that is their context. And so what he does is he he tells them of what Christ has done, that Christ brings sinners back to God, but then he draws their attention to Christ's sovereignty, God's sovereignty to a story that happened hundreds of years before them. And he talks about the work of God in the days of Noah with this family who is saved through a flood. A family that these churches actually could relate to a great deal because of where they were positioned and the kinds of things that they were feeling and the pressures that they were under as a church. And so Peter directs their attention back to the work of Christ through Noah. And he says this in verse 19. So he just had had said that Christ was made alive in the Spirit, verse 18. And then he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. This was a perspective that Peter's readers desperately needed to hear. Not only has Christ suffered once for you, the church, but he was at work even beyond those stories that you know, those earlier stories. Look, God was at work. Christ was at work and he was speaking even in these moments. And this early church, they, they, could, um, they had a lot of relationship with Noah and his family. There was a lot of connection here that they could feel. Noah and his family were in the midst of a situation with unbelievers who were pressing in around them. 
Noah and his family had to do things that were very countercultural. You think about the story of Noah building this ark for something that everybody else was going, what in the world? The world is going to flood? That's never happened before. He had to do this. He had to obey God. He had to be faithful with what God asked him to do, which Peter is writing and he's saying, be faithful to the God who has called you. Live your life as countercultural in this world in which you find yourself. And so he brings their attention back to Noah and his family to gain perspective. I know so many times in my life I, I need to gain perspective. I can be one of those people that gets really worked up about something, like something happens and it's like my focus just, I get blinders and I just focus right into that problem. And I can become like, it can be like paralysis almost. Some of you may experience this at various times where you get so sucked into a problem and you desperately need people in your life. For some of you, this is your spouse, this is my wife. And what they need to do is just pull your focus out of the details of that and go look at your life. Like, look at what is before you. See the context around this particular problem so that your eyes can be kind of heightened to really the reality of the situation and so that you can gain a little bit more understanding about what's going on. And this is kind of what Peter is doing here. He's he's bringing to light God's work in the midst of Noah and his family, and he's giving them an example of something that God did of bringing a family safely through water, safely through death, to the other side, and saving them, being faithful to them. Some of you in here, even as we go through this and you think about suffering, I want want you to think about areas in your life that you may be discouraged right now. This might have something to do with uh, your job. This might have something to do with your marriage, your family. It might have something to do with friendships in your life, relationships in your life. This could have something to do with someone you love that's far from Christ. You've been praying for them, witnessing to them. And you just say, I'm I'm just discouraged in this moment. I don't know what's going on or what to do. Believe that God is at work in ways that you don't always see. When you think about your life and the way that God got your attention, realize that that work that he did in your heart wasn't always visible to those outside of you. And many times when we think about the work that God does, it's almost like the iceberg effect where you see what's visible on the surface, but underneath is this mass that is underneath the surface. And when I think about this passage, I think about this reality that Peter is bringing to this church's attention. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. You will see fruit. It may not always look how you think it's going to look. The world might not turn as fast as you're hoping it's going to turn. Situations may not resolve as fast as you're hoping, but be faithful to what God's called you to do and place your trust in God and his will in your situation and in your lives. And sometimes in the midst of discouragement, we need to see with eyes of perspective to see what God would do. Peter says that Jesus died physically on the cross, yet there was something else happening that they didn't see. He was being made alive in the Spirit. Peter says that Noah and his family were spared, but yet that there was something they didn't see, and that was Jesus speaking and proclaiming in that day. So Jesus speaks, and he speaks through particularly this persecuted minority, and he speaks through his church that is in the midst of a suffering, broken world. The third component today that 
we need to see here is that Jesus rules over all. Keep in mind um, who wrote this letter. This is Peter. In, in all of his weakness and his finitude, this is Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, who stuck his foot in his mouth almost more than he said anything right. This is Peter, this guy. This is Peter who denied Christ. This is Peter who yet saw and witnessed the ascension of Jesus. This is Peter that we're talking about here. And listen to what Peter writes next. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Peter witnessed, was a witness and could testify to who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the same Peter that stood up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and with this boldness that came over him, preached and proclaimed the truth of who Jesus was, quoting Psalm 110, which this the psalmist says, my Lord, for the Lord says to my Lord, um, Uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the same Peter who recognized that Christ is ruling and reigning above all, that this is the Christ whom they killed. In this moment we read about in Acts 2 is when 3,000 people are cut to the heart. This This is that Peter. He sees this and now he's writing to these churches and he's encouraging them and he's saying, look, this is where Jesus is at. This is what he's done. Have faith and trust that what is happening in your life is purposeful. Be a good news people in your conduct. Be transformed by this gospel message. Be a people that live for this good news. There's a great power in news. Ray Bakke, the writer and theologian, kind of says it this way. He says about Christians, he says, Christians are not in the advice business. We're not, you know, we're not Oprah. We don't say like, hey, try this, see if it works. Try Jesus on, see if he fits. That's, that's not how we operate as Christians. We're in the news business. We proclaim news. We, we declare things that have happened, things that have taken place, and there's a great power in that. Uh, Ray Bakke, in his book, A Theology as Big as a City, he shares this story that I want to I close with. Uh, this is a powerful story of the impact of good news. Um, in his book, he talks about a preacher friend of his that was from uh, Scotland. He's a Scottish preacher named Murdo MacDonald, who was a paratrooper in World War II. And MacDonald and his friend, uh, both preachers, were put into this German uh, POW camp, this prisoner of war camp. And in this camp, there were two barracks. It was a large camp. And on one side were the American barracks which is where McDonald was placed. And on the other side were the British barracks, which is where his friend was placed as a chaplain. There were chaplains in this camp to bring up the needs of the the, uh, people there. And so uh, what happened is the American and the British barracks, they weren't allowed to speak to one another, but once a day, the guards would allow the chaplains to come to this fence that was in the middle of the camp that separated them and to share common concerns, prayer requests, needs together, and then go back to their barracks. They did this once per day. 
And what they discovered is that, uh, well, actually, McDonald discovered that the Americans had fashioned together a wireless radio in their barracks. I don't know how, American ingenuity, just chalk it up to that. But they had fashioned a wireless radio and they were receiving news from the outside world. So they were receiving these headlines from the outside world. And so McDonald and his friend were going, how can we communicate these to one another? They discovered that the guards spoke French and they spoke English. So they couldn't use those two languages, but they discovered that the guards, they didn't know Gaelic. <laughs> and so his friend, they would go to the fence and in Gaelic, they would share the headline of the day that came from the American barracks and his friend would go back over to the British barracks and share the news. Well, one day, news came across the radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. This came over the radio in the American barracks. And so the... the um, the chaplains came together, and this is kind of how McDonald uh, speaks about this moment. He says, I took that news to the fence that day, and I gave it to my friend. And that day, I stood at the fence while my friend went into the British barracks. I waited for what I knew would happen. There was a thunderous roar of celebration from the British barracks. And the most amazing thing happened, he says. For three days, see, Communication in Germany had broken down, so the guards didn't know this information. He says the most amazing thing happened. Both of these barracks, these prisoners, knew the news. And he says the most amazing thing happened. For three days, prisoners of war walked around the camp singing and shouting. They were gloriously happy. We didn't complain about the food. We waved at the dogs and the guards. No guard knew what was happening, he says. Nobody could explain it. Every prisoner of war was rejoicing and celebrating. Just picture that. Imagine yourself as a guard and your, your prisoners of war are just acting like there's not a care in the world. They're, they're celebrating. Then he says this, on the morning of the fourth day, we prisoners woke up and realized it was different. No guards. Apparently in the night, they heard the news and slipped out into the forest. They left the gates closed but unlocked. On the morning of the fourth day, we walked out of the prison as freed men. But then McDonald says something that I think is striking, something that we need to hear and really uh, take in. He says, even though we were then free men, he says this, we were actually set free four days before by the news that the war was over. And you, Christian, New Valley Church, those of us who know this good news, this good news that has come to us, we live as people in a broken world that are yet free. We know that the war is over. We don't operate with this dualism that says, you know, some days God's winning, some days he's not. We don't operate that way. We say the war is won. Christ is won. He is ruling and reigning over all. And we operate within this reality as people who have been set free by the power of this good news. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. So circling back to our original questions, what hope do we have in our suffering? What, what encouragement do we have that the suffering is worth anything? What do we do when we feel the darkness around us? We, we need to remember that we have a Savior who has suffered and sympathizes with our suffering and a Savior that will carry us faithfully through suffering. He doesn't remove suffering, but there's intention even with suffering 
but he carries us faithfully through suffering to present us to our Heavenly Father, glorious one day. So we're a good news people living in a broken, broken world. Let's pray this morning. God, you are so gracious. You are so loving. You are worthy of all of our worship. You do all things well. God, I pray in this moment that you would forgive us for those times in which we operate and act no different than the world's system. We confess that we're weak, we're finite creatures, and due to our fallenness, we err. And we err grievously. God, we profess that Christ is our only hope in this life. We declare that suffering has His suffering particularly has produced a glorious victory. We rejoice that you have chosen to work your ways in us and through us. Help us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit to live lives faithfully in our world. Give us courage to live as good news people in our families, in our workplace, in those social gatherings that we find ourselves in with friends, in our community of faith. And God, we pray that you would guard our hearts so that we might look to, that we might rely on, that we might find our joy in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen.